Our lesson tonight comes from Zephaniah chapter 2. As we've been working through uh, the minor prophets, and we're looking at this evening, Zephaniah chapter 2, looking at, as I've titled it here for us uh, this evening, an exhortation to repent and to be preserved. Exhortation simply means a word of encouragement. It means to exhortation literally the idea of building up. And so they are being built up or encouraged uh, to repent and to be preserved uh, from the coming destruction that was going to come upon those who were uh, living in contradiction to God's word and who were living in rebellion to the word of God. We'll begin in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, which I've uh, titled here this first section here, A Call to Repentance and to Seek uh, the Lord. And we look at verse 1 of Zephaniah chapter 2. Here the Bible says, verses 1 through 3 actually says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice, Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so we find here in chap in verse 1 that this is definitely a call to repent. Uh, chapter 1 was largely uh, devoted to the judgment of God on the people for their sins. Uh, a lot of that was dealing with uh, the judgment going to come and they would not repent. And we look here in verse 1, he's calling them together to repent. He's calling them together to turn to God before the wrath of God is poured out upon them. He says here in verse 2, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day the Lord's anger comes upon you. He says that twice there. You find out where before used three times in verse 2. They have to repent before things begin to take place. He goes on to say in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Now, it's only the meek of the earth who would turn back to God. It's only the humble who's going to turn back to God. He says here, who have upheld his justice. That's who he's talking to. Uh, seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so before the judgment of God comes upon them, before God's appointed time arrives for them to be destroyed, to be, be punished, it's not too late for them, as you find here in verses 2 and 3. But they would, but if they wait any longer, it's going to be too late. Verse 3, we find it seems the Lord uh, never ceases trying to get the people to turn back to him. He says there in verse 3, is there anyone that is meek, anyone that is uh, humble, that is filled with humility? They are to turn to God. And then it may be that they will be hidden, he says there in verse 3, in the day of the Lord's anger. That's not literally hiding them away from God's anger. That is that God's wrath will not be poured out upon them because they have repented, as we see there in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. His, there he knows, is a reference to God's justice, not the justice in the eyes of the land or the eyes of the world or the eyes of the wicked, but his justice. Seek righteousness, he says there, which is no doubt goodness, those things that are pleasing to God. Humility, which means obviously being humble enough to turn from their sins and coming back to God. On the humble do those types of things. 
And then he finishes by saying, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now we find there that, yes, they can be hidden if they will turn to God. We also find that that day their wrath is called the day of the Lord's anger. Because his anger is going to be poured out upon those who are living in contradiction to him. We find, if we look at verses 4 and following, that God will judge the nations both near and far in verses 4 through 15. And in verses 4 through 11 specifically, he judges the nations that are near uh, near, and we look at verses 4 through 7, we have that he is going to judge, uh, bring judgment upon uh, Philistia in verses 4 through 7. He says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ascalon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherthites. The, Lord, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. We continue to read there in verses 6 and 7. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks in the houses of, of, of Ascalon. They shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will, it will intervene for them and return their captives. So what's going to happen? God's going to bring wrath upon people. And we found there in verse 7 that the... Uh, he says there, they, the, the house, the remnant of the house of Judah, they shall feed their flocks in their houses in the house of Ashkelon. We find there a lot of part of verse 7 that they're going to be spared, right? But the wicked are not going to be spared. If you back up in just a moment, looking at verses two, uh, verses 4 and 5 here, you notice at the end of verse 5, he says, I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. And that's a reference to those who are going against God. For he says, for, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. And we find that same thing being repeated in verse 5. The inhabitants of the seacoast, that they're going to be destroyed, they're going to be punished and destroyed. He says, The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. Whenever we see phrases like, The word of the Lord is against you, it's never a good thing, is it? God's going to bring punishment upon them because they have been disobedient. They have been arrogant, they have been proud. And they're going to find punishment coming from God. We look at verses 8 through 10. We find judging upon Moab and Ammon in verses 8 through 10. He says, I've heard the reproach of Moab and the insult to the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. We look at verse 8 alone. There's nothing good in that verse, is there? He says, I've heard the reproach of Moab. And the insults of the people of Ammon, which they have reproached, with which they have reproached my people, and made arrogant threats against their borders. He's saying, you've said all these things against me and against my people. And he says in verse 8, you have made threats against their borders, which the idea there, they're going to attack them. He says, therefore, he says, as I live, says the Lord of hosts. That's a pretty strong statement because the Lord, we know, of course, he lives. So if that is a certainty, then his wrath here is also going to be a certainty. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom. Well, what happened to Sodom? Oh, only fire and brimstone rained down upon them from heaven, right? And the people of Ammon, like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt, and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So they're going to be destroyed, and God's people is going to do what? Come in with power, verse, verse 9 there. 
We continue reading there, looking at verse 10. This they shall uh, this they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. As so we look at verses 8 through 10, what has happened with Moab and Ammon? They have harassed the people of God. And as a result, we find there they're going to be punished, as he mentions there, like Sodom and Gomorrah that they're going to be overrun with weeds and salt pits and perpetual desolation. Well, obviously nothing is going to grow, right? And the rest of my people shall plunder them, which means the God's people shall come in and take whatever is left. And he says, and the remnant of my people shall possess them, showing them overcoming them, right? Verse 10, this they shall have for their pride. I mean, this is going to happen because of their pride, because of their arrogance. Because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. And then we also look at verse 11. We find judging upon the gods, little g, of the earth. In verse 11, the Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. You notice how it goes from destruction of the rebellious to destruction of the so-called gods, the false gods. And he starts off this verse by saying, the Lord will be awesome to them. For he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the people. You could look at that being the Lord will be awesome to those who are loyal to him, as we saw there in verse, verse 10, right? In verse 9 and 10, rather. But also he's going to be do terrible things to those who are falling after these gods. He says, for he reduced to nothing all the gods of the earth. This is why he is awesome to the people of God. For he's going to bring the false gods to nothing. People shall worship him, that is the one true God, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. And so what's going to happen? They're all going to be directed to God, the remnant. Those who continue rebellious, well, they're going to be destroyed. You look at verse 12 through 15, you find judgment upon nations that are afar. In verse 12, you have Ethiopia that's mentioned. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by, sword, by my sword. And then he also mentions Assyria and Nineveh in verses 13 through 15. And he will stretch out his hand against the, against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation. As dry as the wilderness, the herd shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the, and the, and the, uh, bittern, uh, and the bittern, shall lodge on the cap capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall, shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at their threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. Looking at verse 15, this is a rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall, shall hiss and shake his fist. You look at verse 15. He's talking about a mighty place that's been reduced to nothing, right? You look at the back of the bottom of there, the end of verse 14. Desolation shall be at the threshold that is at the door, and he will lay bare the cedar work, which means he's going to bring them to nothing. And look at verse 15. This is the rejoicing city that, dealt, that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it. There is none besides me. That's an arrogant city, isn't it? Saying that we are the best, there's nothing, there's no one in comparison to us. Well, they were right in one sense, because they have so much evil, but God was going to punish them. 
And we find in verse 15, how has she become a desolation? It means she's been brought to nothing, right? A place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who, who passes by her shows hiss and shake his fist. <clears throat> Sometimes when you see uh, a building that's been torn down, that's been condemned, and if there's not much around it, you'll notice animals will start to gather around those places. They'll start seeking shelter in the ruins of that. And that's what we find here in verse 15. These animals are going to this city because it's not a city anymore. They're going to go there to lie down. This third dwelling place now, as we see in verse 15. If God punishes the heathen, he also will not spare Judah. As you move into chapter 3, the first few verses of chapter 3, we find that God punishes the heathen and he will not spare Judah. As we look at verses 1 through 7 here. We have a woe to the polluted city classes of sinners and sin. And verses 1 through uh, 4 here first says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. To the oppressing city, she has, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. You notice the number of she has not found there in verses 1 and 2. She's not coming back to God. She hasn't done anything that's right. The, the city here is spoken of as a she, as if it's a person. Well, to her who is rebellious and polluted. The rebellious means they're going against God. Polluted means they're filled with, with sin and evil. To the oppressing city. And that's how he calls her now, the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. means she has not listened to God. She has not heeded his warnings, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 2. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. She has not done anything that's necessary to come back to God, as we find there in verse 2. She has not done anything necessary to avoid destruction, as we find there in, in verse 3. In verse 2, rather. She has not done any of these things. She hasn't listened. She hasn't listened to, to correction. She hasn't trusted, and she hasn't drawn near to him, in verse 2. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They'll leave not a bone till morning, which means they are vicious people. They do nothing but harm those who are in the city. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Those are strong words, isn't it? Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And so you notice in just these first four verses, we find that these princes, judges, prophets, and priests have all gone against God. And it's interesting that it's not isolated just to the princes and judges, but verse 4 points out to the prophets and to the priests, which means it had an effect upon those who were so-called religious, right? The prophets and the priests... You know, we live, no doubt, in a, in a time where, well, really any time we could say that, where leaders can be corrupt, but it's much more devastating when the religious leaders are corrupt, isn't it? Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. I mean, they're not doing what is right. There's no soundness to them. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary, which means worshiping God, you might say anymore, is a joke. 
because they have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law, which means they have ignored it. They have changed it and made it where somebody they don't pay attention to anymore. All things will bring about sure destruction. In verse 5 through 7, you find that Jehovah has a constant reminder that's being placed and given to them. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. He compares himself here to the prophets and priests. Look at verse 5 again here. He says, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He says he will do no unrighteousness, unlike the prophets and the priests. Every morning he brings justice to light, which means every day he is just, unlike the prophets and the priests and the judges and the rulers of that time there. He says there in verse 5, he never fails, which means he never what? He never falters. He never is unfaithful. He never does injustice or, or injustice. He never does unrighteousness. He never is evil. He never fails. He says, but the unjust... Referencing those we just saw the first few verses, knows no shame, which means they don't even blush when we talk about their sin. Sometimes today, when we try to talk to people about things or hear people talk about how they live, they have no shame in how they live, especially when it is involving sin. They don't blush. They don't feel bad about it. They're not shameful of it. And it used to be, you know, that divorce was a very dirty word. You didn't, you didn't talk about those types of things. You definitely tried to do all you could to avoid those situations. But today, it seems for a lot of people, that's just the way of life. They know no shame, as you find here in verse 5. He says in verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated, have made their streets desolate, with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no, no, no one, no inhabitant. Which means he's going to do what? Wipe them off. If a city has no inhabitants, it has no one passing by, it's a ghost town, isn't it? It's a place someone goes to. <clears throat> Sometimes you're driving the back roads, you'll go through a town and you might have a stop sign. You'll see some businesses that once used to exist, but there's nothing there anymore. The sign's all faded. The grass has grown up. You say, well, that is not, <laughs> that's not a business that's in, in business, right? It's a ghost town. And that's what, we, that's what we find here in verse 6. There's none passing by. There's no inhabitant. He says here in verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off. Despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. That's a very sad verse, verse 7. What God is saying there, no matter how hard I tried, they rebelled. No matter how many times he tried to bring them back, they rebelled. He says in verse 7, Surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling will not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. Every time he tried to show her the way back and punished her for her evil deeds and corrected her, he says in verse 7, But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. That's a dark place, isn't it? You know, for God to, to use these words here to describe how hard and how much he tried to bring them back, and they rebelled. They rose up and committed sin. The Bible there says they rose up early, which means basically the idea here is that they sinned all the time. They were living in darkness and evil, 
to rise up early and corrupt it, to corrupt all their deeds just means they were a constant problem all day long, every day. And while they were doing those things, God was trying to bring them back there in verse 7. Despite everything with which I punished her, which means every time he tried to correct them, it didn't work. Which tells us today, no matter how much God loves us, no matter how, how much God wants us to come back to him, the decision is ultimately our own, isn't it? Because if he wanted them to come back, if he wanted to force them to come back, he'd have to force them, right? He'd have to take away their free will in order to bring them back, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he wants them to come back on their own. He punishes them and shows, and shows them uh, ways to come back, provides numerous opportunities, as we saw earlier on in chapter 2. But here we are in chapter 3, and the Lord is saying, no matter how much he punished them, they just want to come back. And how sad it is. Sometimes, you know, we can't near do uh, near, do anything near like what God does, but sometimes we may feel this way when we talk with people we have been coming to services or have been faithful in any capacity and sometimes we can find ourselves feeling like no matter how hard we try they just won't come back and we find here what does God do to those who just will not come back well he punishes them we know today that on the day of judgment, punishment will, wait, will be awaiting for those who will not come back. Look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. What's he talking about? Wait for me to rise up and come against you. My determination is to gather the nations to, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the air should be devoured, the fire of my jealousy. Now that jealousy is a righteous jealousy. It's not the sinful jealousy we think about because the one true God wants us to worship him and him alone. In that sense, it's a righteous jealousy. He wants them to worship him because he's the only way to heaven in the first place. But we find here in verse 8, he wants them all to be gathered together. That he's going to pour out his wrath upon them. And rightfully so, right? You know, God is a God who is long-suffering, patient, and merciful. You go back again, look at verse, verse before we get too hung up on verse 8, remember, this is God who said back in verse 7, no matter how hard he tried, how much he punched them there in verse 7, they would not follow after him. They just continued in sin. Therefore, because of those things, because of their refusal to come back to him, in verse 8 he says, I'm going to pour out my anger upon you. How much anger could God possibly have? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah found out, didn't they? Those who lived in days of Noah, when it rained until they all drowned and died, that's God's anger. People whose heart was only whose hearts and minds only on on thoughts of evil continually, continually. That's what it took for God to wipe them off. Sodom and Gomorrah. They tried to, the men there were so perverse. They tried to pour, force themselves in upon the messengers of God. Those who were brought out of Egypt and pursued by Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army was destroyed because they were pursuing God's people. But we find numerous occasions where God is showing mercy upon people until mercy just, you might say, or time, not mercy, but time runs out. Because at some point, everyone has to say they're not going to do what is right. 
And in, in verse 7, God has decided there, seemingly, <laughs> they're not going to do what is right. No matter how hard he punished them, no matter how much he corrected them, they weren't going to do what is right. And so what does he do in verse 8? He pours out his wrath upon them. People begin, are going to begin to feel God's anger in a very real sense. He says, I will, until the day that I rise up for plunder, my determination is to gather the nations to, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And not literally all the earth, but the idea there being all those kingdoms who have been against him, they're all going to burn, is what he's saying. And rightfully so. He was going to purge them out because they were evil. Some lessons for us today. God always grants time for repentance. You know, we read about God's wrath in Zephaniah, and we're not done with Zephaniah. We're going to finish that next time. But we also read about God's patience, don't we? I mean, he was very patient with them. Chapter 1 is all about wrath is coming unless they repent. And chapter 2 was repent, 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 repent. And chapter 3 was here it comes, right? Because they would not repent. We are to seek forgiveness. Go back to Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Why? Because wrath was coming. When we repent, God will forgive. 1 John 1 and verse 9. This was also the only hope of those in Zephaniah's time. You go back to Zephaniah 2 and verse 3. Was he say, maybe you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger, which we saw in verse 8 of chapter 3, right? It may be that you'll be hidden. And just even though God grants time for repentance, judgment will await those who will not change. Because, friends, there are those who will never change, who will never come out of their sin. And if we're honest, a lot of people today, their biggest sin is they're too selfish and too proud to come back to God. They would rather live in sin and face damnation on the day of judgment than to ever admit they are in wrong. And for those individuals, what a very sad day it will be. Judgment awaits those who will not change. When mankind refuses to turn to God, only judgment from God awaits them, not hope. Looking back to uh, Zephaniah 2, verse 8 and 9, I've heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of, my, of the people of Ammon, which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. What's going to happen? God's going to punish them. Verse 9, what's he say? He's going to turn them into a big salt pit, basically. He's going to just wipe them off. Those who fail to repent often believe God will do nothing. And this is not true and is a sure way to see the wrath of God. Look at Psalm 94. I know this is going to be a little bit of a long reading. But Psalm 94 really helps us understand some of the problems people still have even today. Psalm 94, beginning in verse 1, says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, judge the earth, render punishment to the proud, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. Does that sound familiar when you think about Zephaniah? It sounds just like them. We saw in chapter 3, they said, we're a great city. We are it. Next thing you know, the wrath of God's coming. 
Looking at verse 4 of, of Psalm 94, they utter, they utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in their they, they break in their in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. They're doing evil things. No doubt there's a lot of the same things going on in Zephaniah's time. Looking at verse 7, yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. We must not confuse God's long suffering with his lack of ability to respond. Because he always responds. You know, sometimes, you know, as a child, if you get in trouble and your parents say, you know what, when we get home, we're going to take care of this. And you pray, they forget about it probably, right? But when you get home, you realize your parents have a very good memory. And then eventually you hear them say, hey, come here. Because when you think about God's long suffering, he never forgets. And those who refuse to come back to him, what's going to happen? Well, verse 7, they say, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand, you senseless, um, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? Verse 8 is a direct response to verse 7. He calls those who think in such ways fools. You think the Lord's not going to do something? That's what he's saying. Understand you senseless among the people. I love that he calls them senseless, because it is senseless to think God's will do no that God will do nothing. And you fools, when will you, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? What is he doing? He's calling them out. He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? What he's saying is the Lord sees and hears everything. He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile, right? They are worthless, especially when they come against God. Blessed is a man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. The upright in heart will follow righteousness. But the wicked, as he says there in verse 14, the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to the righteous. What is he talking about? The righteous will see righteous judgment upon the wicked. Because we saw early on in Psalm 94 that people were being abused, right? The righteous judgment of God will come. Man has had the same struggle since the beginning of time, and that is sin. Zephaniah saw it, and no doubt all the other prophets of old saw it as well, and we still see it today. The problem has always been sin, and the solution has not changed either. Repentance and obedience to God is always the solution. If we're not a Christian, we must hear the Word of God. We believe that Christ is the Son of God based upon what we have heard. We confess that Christ is the Son of God. We repent of our sins. We are immersed in baptism. Our sins will be washed away. Then we remain faithful to God, right? That's how a non-Christian becomes a Christian. The Christian corrects their problems by repentance and obedience. You know, sir, in Zephaniah, it's a coming back to me. He had been betrayed, and he would not stand for being betrayed. This evening, as you think about these things, you think about our own lives, we want to make sure that we are one who is never guilty of betraying God. Because we know one day, that great day of judgment, God's going to right every wrong and bring about righteous judgment. This evening, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. That's what we say and sing the song that's been selected.